Jim Corker, you're an Irish Jesuit. You are lecturing in the Gregorian University in Rome and you did your PhD on Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict XV. Can you tell me, what are your initial reflections these days? Well, of course, I started to study his work for that doctoral thesis 35 years ago. So I feel a certain loss because I have walked with the books and the thought and indeed the controversies of this man over a lifetime of teaching theology, my lifetime and part of his lifetime. So I felt a certain sadness when he died. But also I know from things I read and things he said that he was ready. He was indeed preparing for death for a long time. So I felt also that it was good that he died peacefully and without distress, it seems, other than weakness. And it was at the end of a life of enormous contribution. Tell me about your doctoral thesis on Joseph Ratzinger, because his theology was significant. And I want to talk to you about that and his theological legacy, and then also his papal legacy. Let's start with the theological. Well, yes, uh, I mean, I knew him much more through his theology. I never met him personally or was not taught by him anything. And I was asked when I was in America, I was about 32, 33 years old at the time, uh, doing a licentiate in theology, a kind of master's. And I was looking in that work at the theology of Leonardo Boff, a liberation theologian. And I was looking at how he looks at the theology of grace through a social lens as a liberation theologian. And I was interested in that because I was interested also in questions of the relationship between faith and justice. And a lot of people had talked about social sin. And I thought, St. Paul said, where sin abounded, grace abounded more. So let's look and see how grace could be conceived, not only individually and personally, but also socially. And uh, Boff had written Liberating Grace, a, a very good book, translated in the late 1970s. And that was a central book for my thesis. Now, while I was doing the thesis, Boff ran into trouble with the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome, not for that book or for his theology of grace, but for a book he wrote on the church, on ecclesiology, uh, which was quite critical and negative about the church and its procedures and procedures with regard to theologians. Uh, the book was called Church, Charism and Power. So when all that happened, my teachers in the university, Catholic University in Washington, they knew I knew German. So that uh, certainly affected my life providentially, because they said, why don't you dig into his theology and see why it is that he's so opposed to liberation theology? So that's how I came to do my doctorate on him, not by the route of jumping from appreciation to greater appreciation to greater appreciation, but actually from a side that saw things differently. That's very interesting. So what did you realize? I mean, what, what was Ratzinger's issue with the work of Boff? Well, Ratzinger had done two doctorates, as German professors often do. And one was on St. Augustine, his theology of the church. And one was on St. Bonaventure, medieval Franciscan, but in the Augustinian tradition, more or less. And from those studies, Ratzinger would have certainly been aware that the human being is fundamentally sinful, 
in need of grace, not capable of achieving much on his or her own. We are beggars before God, he wrote once. He wrote on another occasion, now 50, 60 years ago, uh, we have nothing that we have not received. Uh, these things are all true when you look at them, particularly in a certain tradition, but they leave you with the view of the human being who is not very capable of doing anything much on his or her own. And he was reading liberation theology and finding it very strong on what people could do to bring forward their existence, to move them towards salvation. It was a theology that emphasized doing, making a lot, much more than he thought was appropriate in terms of an understanding of the human being. So he pushed against that from his background in the idea that we are not makers, but much more receivers. He tied all this also to the time. He said we were living in the second age of technical rationality, an age that believed profoundly in progress, that was highly optimistic. At the end of the 60s, we had put somebody on the moon. The person of the future held everything in his or her hands. And Ratzinger saw this kind of emphasis, which was an emphasis actually in Europe and the West, plus the emphasis in liberation theology on being rather more involved in our own salvation as falsifying really what the human being is. And then there's one other thing. I know this is a bit theological and technical maybe, but Ratzinger had said he didn't like liberation theology because of all that emphasis on um, making, perhaps making our own salvation, but he didn't like its understanding of salvation, which he thought was too innerworldly you know, well-being in this world, where he said salvation is always God's gift. But what he thought was that underneath that notion of salvation was a materialistic understanding of the human being, one that came from the use of Marxism. He didn't accuse them of being Marxist, but he said effectively they take up a Marxist vision of history. They believe that structures make people good, whereas in fact it's people that make structures good. So his emphasis in theology were very much on the other side. You cannot say that he had nothing to say about our cooperation with God in the business of our salvation, nor can you say that liberation theologians had nothing to say about the way in which without God there is no salvation. But just two very different sets of emphases based on two very different kind of theological upbringings, and this made for a considerable clash. Yeah, because emphasis was what I was going to ask you. Was this a matter of emphasis or were there fundamental, non-negotiable doctrinal differences in the liberation theology and in the theology of Ratzinger? He thought there were emphases there which tilted their theologies away from central aspects of the theological tradition. To give one example, somebody with whom he said in the end he had a good dialogue it was Gustavo Gutierrez, a Peruvian theologian who wrote a book called The Theology of Liberation. And Ratzinger gave a fairly sharp talk against it in Lima in Peru in 1985. And Ratzinger's idea was that while Gutierrez made the necessary distinctions between liberation from sin, liberation for the kingdom, for life with God and so on, that the real center was a kind of a utopian vision and that envisaged a kind of an imminent worldview, an immanent worldview, salvation already now brought about by our action. And Ratzinger said, while well, the other two levels were there and acknowledged, 
and even distinguished out, the motor of his theology was a kind of utopian vision of an inner-worldly salvation, and that that was more than a wrong emphasis. It tended in the direction of being at variance with the teaching of the church. And when he had that good discussion with him, did he still hold that he was right about good theories or did he move? I mean, was he somebody open in his theology to some movement or do do you think he was consistent in what he wrote and believed all the way through his life as a theologian? Well, I think both those things, because one question you ask is about behavior and the other question is actually about whether one's thought is consistent and takes the same line. He's pretty consistent in his thought based on the fundamentals of his early studies. Also, his closeness maybe to Lutherans. They don't like you talking about salvation being brought about by human effort in any way. Uh, There's a consistency in his theological thought, but he did dialogue with theologians. And Gutierrez was one in question because there was an over and back Now, dialogue takes a long time in the church because 15 years later, after the publication in English of A Theology of Liberation, Gutierrez published a book again. And he, in a new introduction, dispelled any notion that he had an imminentist, this worldly view of salvation. And he said, if I've given such an impression, I haven't intended to. A German theologian called Michael Sievernich said this showed um, considerable humility on Gutierrez's part. It seems that Ratzinger was obviously happy also that he said that, he clarified that, because later Ratzinger referred to that dialogue between the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and that theologian as a profitable one. It's interesting that I didn't notice that Gutierrez, in reissuing the book after 15 years, substantially changed the book itself, but he was much more careful about utopian language, and he was also careful about that business of imminentism. Another theologian said that he did not use the word utopia in a Marxist sense. He used it in the sense of a kind of a vision of an ideal state of affairs, which would draw one forward and simply motivate one to move forward to bring about greater social justice. I think that defense has some merit too. Like the kingdom of God, the way Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. Of course, they all make the kingdom of God central. But how do you see the kingdom of God and how do you see it operating in theology? Ratzinger's stress in is, above all, that the kingdom is gift. The kingdom is not here. It is not yet. If there were fragments of it, it's as much as you would have. And he's not even sure about fragments of salvation, especially not coming from our activity. Whereas, of course, other theologians more freely speak about our cooperation in the business of at least bringing about the kingdom incipiently. And that's your own thinking, Jim. Like, you did your work on this. You're a theologian. Where do you stand now with it, having purveyed the liberation theology in Ratzinger and the debate? Where I stand is, I think that the critique of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith was too severe. I didn't see that level of imminentism in the book of Gutierrez. Also, there are no dogmas in the area of salvation in theology. So when you asked me earlier, was some doctrine contradicted? Well, certainly some dogma wasn't. Ratzinger would say the church's tradition, teaching, emphases with regard to salvation were certainly set aside or moved away from. But there actually wasn't a dogma. All would have agreed that we are saved by God. They might have emphasized different aspects of the salvation. Ratzinger, when he talks about salvation, emphasizes three things we can't give ourselves. 
Salvation is salvation from sin. Very important. It's also divinization, sharing in the divine nature. And the third thing it is, is resurrection from the dead. So his understanding of salvation is very much focused on, in some ways, you could say the life of the world come. Yeah, the afterlife. Whereas, yeah. whereas obviously in the situation in Latin America, where there was rampant poverty, injustice, people suffering greatly, infant mortality rates very high, people were rather focused on the reality around about. And more than that, as theologians, they knew that people would find it difficult to believe if salvation, when they were told about it, seemed to have very little to do with life in the present world. I tend towards that influence too. I, I think salvation, there need to be signs of it now, a touch of it now, an experience of it now, if the belief in salvation is to become credible. What strikes me listening to you is that one of the big differences between St. Gutierrez and Boff and between Cardinal Ratzinger is that as head of the CDF at the time, the Congregation for Doctrine and Faith, he had the power to silence people, to silence theologians, and certainly for quite some time had the reputation for being rather ruthless in how he dealt with theologians. Is that correct? Is that how you would see it? Have you a comment on that? Rather ruthless. That's a rather uh, significant <laughs> phrase. I, I would think he was hard sometimes, certainly. But I think this, I may be wrong because I don't have inside information. Ratzinger was a professor who corrected people's works as their professor and teacher. And he knew that to put a page into a person's book, which pointed out the errors of the person, whatever they were, in logic, in background philosophy, or in closeness to the teaching of the church, that was sufficient to do. So Ratzinger's own tendency was simply to point out the errors. He wasn't an enthusiast for punitive measures. Those punitive measures occurred more under the papacy of John Paul II, you know, periods of silence, theologians not being allowed to write or teach in the Catholic faculty. John Paul II once wrote a book called The Acting Person, and he was an acting person. And I think he was definitely far harder on dissent, but it was the job of the congregation of the doctrine of the faith to find disagreement. Let's not call it dissent, which is such a, but to find disagreement in theologians and to surface that and to point it out. But very often the measures were taken. I don't think, I'm not even sure that Ratzinger's office had the power to impose such measures. Now, I don't know because I didn't work there. I was never, thank God, so far an object of investigation. But it seems to me that looking over the course of the years, I've been teaching theology 31, 32 years, that it was a severe time during the papacy of John Paul II and Ratzinger in the 80s and 90s, that the severity lessened after Ratzinger became Pope. And now I don't find in a quick glance at the website, which is all I had time to take, of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the Dicastery, as it's now called, I don't find any individuals being investigated. But I know there are still cases unresolved. There are people suffering. Yeah, but the last book well, that yeah. I could find on the list was Margaret Farley's Just Love. And that was in 2012, before the papacy of Francis. It's not that Francis is soft on doctrine, but I think he might want it to be worked out more in discussion between theologians and believers in a way where they point out to each other what is good and what is less good, questionable and less questionable. And I see in Ratzinger too, like for example, once he said, yes, the procedures of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith could be more just, 
we must always aim at justice. There are moments when he said things like that and also tried to conduct later dialogues, perhaps a bit more amicably than earlier ones. There's some evidence in his life of his moving in that direction. Because they do say that when he was younger, he actually wrote about the injustice <laughs> of how the CDF dealt with theologians, well, but they, he moved away from that. It wasn't the CDF at that time, you know, it was the Holy Office under Cardinal Ottaviani. And he certainly wrote that its procedures and methods should be updated. But then they were at the council. The name was changed, became the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And they do have norms for how they conduct their dialogues. They don't work completely without bridle, you know. And he did say that those could be fair, they should be observed and they should they could be made more just. Yeah, because I think in fairness, by any standards, they wouldn't hold in any normal secular court of democratic law, you know, that the way people are treated. And, and you know. there are people listening to you now who will yeah. eventually be listening to me. And yeah. they'll say, I am rather soft on him. And they'll say people were investigated without knowing they were under yeah. investigation. That yeah. is true. And I think that is wrong. And it was often not clear to people what they were accused of, that they were being investigated, and worst of all, by whom the accusation was made. I can't and won't defend any of that, and I think that shouldn't happen. Just one other question. You know this whole debate in theology about relativism and the role of history (laughs) and development? Ratzinger, you mentioned Bonaventure there, a bit more open in that regard toward historicity and the role of history and time, as opposed to, say, people who took a more neo-Thomistic line after Thomas Aquinas. Would you see that in Ratzinger's work? Is he a bit more open to the impact of history on our lives and on how we understand ourselves before God? At the same time, he was very concerned about relativism, wasn't he? And the truth was absolute. Yeah, well, there's a bunch of things there. And, And the danger in this conversation is that the legacy of Ratzinger. Now, we have talked about his theological legacy in terms of behaviors where he did things that didn't always please everybody. But his own theological synthesis is a remarkable edifice. It's not a system, but it's certainly a coherent body of knowledge. It fills now some 15 or 16 fat volumes. And what he got from Bonaventure, for example, to just take one point that you made there, he was never a neo-scholastic. He was taught dry, arid, top-down neo-scholasticism early on in the seminary, but he managed to avoid it when he went to Munich University because he found a teacher there, a man called Gottlieb Zöngen, who was an enthusiast for Augustine and Bonaventure and was an enthusiast also for theology done in a different idiom. That man wasn't a neo-scholastic. So theology wasn't done in terms of definitions that you proved with proof texts and so on. And Ratzinger instinctively went to that side and stayed on that side because he preferred an existentialist, personalist, dialogical approach in theology, even to the point that his major second doctorate was on the theology of Revelation. And instead of, as was traditional at the time, speaking about Revelation as God communicating truths about himself, So a knowledge-based understanding of Revelation. Ratzinger said, you don't find that in Bonaventure. You find in Bonaventure that Revelation is an act concept. And no revelation occurs unless there is somebody, a subject who is revealed to. So Revelation is relational, dialogical. God speaks and God speaks in history. And God is only speaking when there is a subject 
to listen to God. Now, the fundamental subject who listens to God is the church, but at the center of his theology is an encounter with Jesus Christ for everyone. If you read the document on Revelation in Vatican II, that is dialogical, personalist, historical, ecumenical, etc., a huge amount of that is owed to Ratzinger. That's an important thing to point out. <laughs>